Hello, everyone, and welcome to Curious with Jake Heilbrunn. These are some crazy times in the world, and today's episode, I believe, is one of the most important conversations I've recorded to date. I sat down to interview Gary Thornton, who has more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, coach, counselor, and administrator in both public and private education. Gary also used to be my high school principal. Gary is a black man who grew up in a very different world than I did. However, he has spent well over the last decade living and teaching in North County, San Diego, which, if you aren't familiar, is an affluent and predominantly white community. I wanted to sit down with Gary because due to the recent protests and the murder of George Floyd, there's rightfully been a huge light shed on the systemic racism that is rampant in our country today in 2020. As things have been escalating, I've been asking and wondering myself, what can I do as a white privileged person to help? There are so many other questions and topics I wanted to ask Gary. However, the lens of what can privileged white people do to help the black community is the main guiding star for the interview today, as well as how white people of privilege can better educate themselves in order to take empowered actions in in creating a just society. So without further ado, today's episode with Gary Thornton. Again, thank you for having this conversation with me. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of craziness happening in the world right now. And one of the reasons I specifically wanted to talk with you is I live in Encinitas. A lot of the people who follow the podcast and really just in my community live in a predominantly like white world. Mm-hmm. And you've been a principal. You've been an educator for 30 years. You've been a principal at Torrey Pines High School, La Costa Canyon High School, Canyon Crest Academy. Again, pretty much all predominantly you left White. out La Costa Canyon. No, I said oh, I said LCC. SDA, then you... Oh, SDA? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so four high schools in North County, yeah. predominantly white students. Mm-hmm. Your experience, you know, you have this almost like dichotomy of understanding the world from where you grew up and then being in North County, San Diego. So I think one of the main... St- and we're going to get into a lot of different things, but one of the main uh, stances that I think you could really provide a lot of answers to that I know myself and lots of people I've been talking to is a lot of people, white people of privilege are asking, what can I do to support the black community? What can I do to help during these times and kind of certain feelings of, you know, I don't want to say or do the wrong thing, but I want to be uh, a vehicle of support. Mm -hmm. And before we get into that though, I just wanted to kind of like set the stage and learn a little bit more about you and what was your life like growing up as a kid, what was your neighborhood like? What was your household like? So, um, I live in a, I live in a bubble <laughs> that's an, an incredibly different bubble from my childhood upbringing. I grew up in the San Bernardino area. Um, I, I, I was thinking, I, I remember addresses. My first address that I remember, uh, was 1495 Grand Street. It was a little house on a corner that was yellow. I remember that very, very well. And, um, I have five siblings. They are all girls. Hmm. Um, and, uh, are you the youngest? I know I'm the second in the family. Okay. And my, so in, in that home, I think the, this family of eight, including mom and dad, stepmom or stepdad and, and then mom, excuse me, uh, this family of eight, and I think we probably lived in a three-bedroom house, maybe, uh, yeah, three-bedroom home. And then uh, from that home, we moved to a place called Muskoy. Um, 
just that's an it was an area in San Bernardino and a pretty tough area. Um, could I say it was diverse? Yeah, it was diverse. There were there were some black families. There were some white families, and then um, and then a, a higher percentage of of uh, Latinos. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, we moved to Rialto. And we moved to Rialto because my mother believed that it was a better community, it was better schools, and somehow um, it was going to be better. Uh, and the interesting thing was is that Rialto um, soon became what San Bernardino was um, to us. It was a, a, a community... I don't know that I ever felt like I wasn't safe, but um, by the time I was in, in, a senior in high school, there were certainly huge divisions between the whites and the blacks. There were um, standoffs. I don't know that there was an out-and-out fight in the middle of the campus, but major standoffs. And by the time I visited my high school again a year or two later, um, I went back to go to a football game there were police dogs and a police force on campus. And so the neighborhood became a much tougher um, community. And uh, I wouldn't want, uh, I, I really wouldn't want to live there right now. Uh, and I say that not because of the, the people in terms of color. I wouldn't want to live there because socioeconomically speaking, um, there's no industry that supports that place. And so you see, um, you see what that does to a community. And, um, I, I was the first person in my uh, family that went off to college and got a formal education. And, uh, I'm happy to say that, I mean, I think she would say it if she was here, uh, the second person that did that was my sister who practices law. She lives in Chicago, and she would probably say that um, my decision to do that influenced her. So, mm-hmm. And she um, was a younger sister. She's a younger sister. I have one older sister, and then I have four younger sisters. So mm-hmm. that's the way that goes. Yeah, and what, what pulled you onto the path of wanting to pursue an education? Were there any things... Like, if you were the first in your family, were there any specific influences, things that you wanted to avoid or things that you wanted to pursue that kind of led you down this path of education? Um, truly, the educators that cared in my school. And, and I'd like to say, I, I wished I could say that all of them cared. That's not true. Um, I, I remember distinctively um, my high school football coach, uh, Coach DeLuiso, um, he was a man that I felt like he was tough disciplinarian guy. And he, um, he showed an interest in me, uh, Mrs. Rucker, my senior English teacher, um, Mrs. Cronholm, who was a, a, a ninth grade, uh, my ninth grade teacher as a teacher's aide. And then there's a woman, her name is, uh, Mrs. Wyans. And she, uh, she just, modeled what learning could do mm-hmm. and so what it could do for you and how it could help to make your life better and I didn't know it's it's funny when you don't know what you don't know right mm-hmm. so um the way that I was living 
I thought was normal. But then I began to get my eyes open to there's other possibilities and you don't have to, um, you don't, you don't have to just live to survive. You can actually live a purposeful and meaningful life. And so, um, that really stirred me on to getting an education. And so, um, yeah, that's, that was the drive for me. Interesting. Yeah. And growing up, do you remember what, what one of your first experiences is with like racism or if you've ever had any experiences being like racially profiled or, uh, my, um, I, I remember the very first time I was ever called nigger. Uh, I remember I was walking down Willow Avenue in Rialto and I was with this guy and his name was Mike Inglis. And I have no idea of where Mike is right now, but Mike was this blonde haired, blue eyed guy. And he, and I was me and I was walking with Mike and there was a, a, a home that we walked past and the home had um, oranges on a tree in the front yard and both Mike and I decided to help ourselves to an orange. And an, uh, an older man came out of his home and he began to yell at us for stealing his oranges. And uh, I'm certain, I don't know how sassy we were, but I'm certain that we were sassy back to him. And I remember him saying to, uh, to Mike first, do your parents know? that you are hanging out with this nigger boy. And that was probably, it was the first time I heard it. How and, old were you? Mm, I, I, I don't know, sixth grade, oh, maybe wow. something like that. Gotcha. I remember um, that that's the one. I'm not sure that that's the first time I was ever called that. I'm certain that that was the first time that it resonated with me mm-hmm. that Someone was calling me a nigger. And then I, um, I'm old enough that I, San Bernardino is probably an hour away from Los Angeles. But in 1965, when the Watts riots broke out, uh, I remember seeing uh, the looting and the rioting there, uh, fires, policemen, uh, the National Guard. So all of what I'm seeing today, I can say to you, I was a child, but I've seen it before. In 1992, I got to see it again. Um, it, it, it seems as if we as a country, uh, we're slow to learn. And um, you, you disenfranchise people, and I'm maybe getting ahead of where you, you want to oh, go. Let's but keep going. You, you disenfranchise people, and, um, and, and you press them and press them down and sooner or later they can't take it anymore so they push back and I I think we're seeing that today I think that what's going on before us is not just about um, it's it's not just about privilege it's about a lack of an a a lack of awareness Um, it's about uh, just a, a a total disregard or an assumption that's made about people. It's about silence. Um, it's not, it's never been in my mind and it isn't today that every policeman 
is a racist or out to harm. But there are policemen that are like that. And what happens to them? And what recourses are there for a black person? Uh, do I feel afraid of police? It depends. There are certain areas I wouldn't want to ever be pulled over by a policeman. And there are other areas where I wouldn't care about it. I live in a bubble. I said that before. I'll say it again. I rarely see a policeman. Mm -hmm. And Mike, driving in the community that I live in, I rarely see a policeman. But if I drove 35 minutes south of where I live, I know that there are policemen all over the place. I also know growing up, the policeman, I was never told by my mother that the policeman was my friend. I was told, stay away from the police. Watch out for the police. Because her experience and the experiences of, of other black people in my community growing up was that you couldn't trust them to do right by you. So imagine every day living in a world where you see a car that drives by, it's black and white, and on the side of it, it says, to protect and serve. And you ask yourself the question, does that mean me? Are they there to protect and serve me? Or are they there to protect and serve people that look a lot like them and think a lot like them? And so what I'm... What I'm dealing with as I witness what's going on right now is I can't answer for every black person, but I answer for me. And I, I ask myself um, the same question that you ask, what can I do? And one of the things that I can do is I can speak. So this opportunity to speak right here is a great opportunity for me. It gives me a chance to say to you, I know that there are privileges that you have that I don't have. If I don't get the loan at the bank, if I don't get the promotion, I always have to say to myself, was it because I wasn't qualified or was it because I wasn't qualified by color mm. is everybody that's promoted in the system promoted because they're better or are they promoted because they're white even if i'm wrong i still have to think that and you could say well no you don't have to yeah i do i have to think that because the system that we live in rewards those that look like them. And that makes some people feel uncomfortable, although they'll say, um, one of my favorite statements, well, he's just playing the race card. Every time I hear that statement, I ask, what, what does that mean? What is the race card? Is there something that I carry around in my pocket that I say to myself, oh, wow, now is a good time to use this. I, that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. But can I say to you in my experience professionally, on a personal level, in a community level, 
that I have ever experienced or questioned the legitimacy of a decision as it being related to race? Absolutely. Um, and that's a reality. I, I was talking to one of my friends who happens to be a female, and I, she said, well, I, 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 I can't relate to this. And I said, she said, and then she went on to say, well, the only way that I could relate is being a woman. And I said, absolutely. But you also have the benefit of being a white woman. A black woman has to say, did I not get the job because I was a woman? And then she has to add a layer. Did I not get the job because I'm a woman and because I'm a black woman? And so that's a part of living in the world that I live in that I think right now people are saying, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't want you to make assumptions that because my skin color is different than yours, that if I'm jogging down the street, I'm the guy that broke into the houses that we're broken into. I don't want to live in a world where because I'm law enforcement and I think that you are this awful criminal that you can put your knees on my neck and that that's okay. I don't want to be Sandra Bland that because I'm driving down the street and you decide that you are going to tell me to get out of my car and things escalate over a moving violation. Over That's where it started. It started over a moving violation. Mm-hmm. And here's a question I have for I'm you. Sorry, yeah. No, I, I love it. So I don't know if you, you uh, saw the video with Amy Cooper, the woman in Manhattan. Uh, clips, a, a small clip of it. But I, you know the gist. She sure. essentially called the cops yes. on that black man who was just bird watching and he right. films the whole thing. Yeah. And this is something that that seems to be like a prevalent embedded into the minds of of our culture, which is black man equivalates to danger. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so in that instance you could see that woman's having a visceral fear based reaction because this man is black and mm-hmm. she's making all these false accusations. My question for you is if someone is in their neighborhood or whatever and they see a black man and, and they, that, that thought comes up of potential danger because that is like, it's almost like uncomfortable for me to say that, but I'm mm-hmm. just being honest in the sense of like, I know that that I've even had that feeling. It's mm-hmm. like a programmed response. But my question for you is what would you invite people who have that? If, when that feeling comes up, what would you invite them to ask themselves or to think about? Well, I, I think that um, obviously fear is it's a real emotion. I, I, to say, hey, don't be afraid. I, I think you have to ask before you get to that situation. What what are the things that led me to believe that I'm in? I need to be in fear. Watch how blacks are portrayed on television, in social media. 
um, watch how people describe blacks and figure out where your fear came from. But another thing is take people as an individual. Forget about my skin color. Say hello to me. I'll say hello back. You could make, that woman could have made the same assumption about me. That man was no threat to her. I'm no threat to her. We're no threat to her. Why does she have to decide that the first place to go is threat? And, and I, I, I sincerely believe the media portrays us as someone to be afraid of. 100%. The roles that we play in movies, the roles that we play in the sitcom, the roles that we play in the dramatic TV show, what are those messages? And so those messages perpetuate. You should be afraid of those people. What are the stories that we carry in our local newspaper? I mean, the media is hyping this but who are they showing out front i i'm 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 pleased when i see that the black woman hugs the police officer that's a story that the group of black men surround the police officer to protect him not to harm him where's that story in the news mm -hmm. So I, I think that, that we have to get to the root cause of the fear. And the root cause of the fear is who's painting the picture? Mm -hmm. Who's the narrator of the story? It's not me. It's people that don't look like me. Yeah. It's you. And, and I think when you said that, it was a, a powerful reminder for me and anyone who when you have these, because it's almost like uh, it's an unconscious bias, mm. but it developed from exactly what you said, which is this messaging and narration that has been programmed and we're not even questioning the narrative. We've just consumed it and my parents consumed it and their parents consumed it. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, the responsibility to question that narrative and also question the responses that we're having to, to question what we've been told essentially, even mm -hmm. though it's not, it's like, not exactly direct, but it's very directly indirect, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. with what you're saying with social sure. media music. And one question I have, again, and this is what I, I said at the beginning of the interview, but I've talked to a lot of my friends um, and a lot of white people. We were at the Cardiff uh, Kook protest the other day. Mm. And it's like, first, my first question to you is on the education front. Mm. What would you, like if you could recommend three books that people read, to have an understanding of like how deep this goes and understanding this from like a systemic standpoint or whatever you believe is just three books that people should read to have a better understanding of what's going on. Hmm. Um, what would you recommend? The Invisible Man, To Kill a Mockingbird. Read that story. Read that story and remind yourself of what Harper Lee said. It's a sin to kill a mockingbird. They wake up in the morning, then they sing you a beautiful song, and then they sing an, another beautiful song to close the evening. There are a lot of mockingbirds that are harmless, that are being treated 
as if they're villains. And then I think, um, I, I may get this title incorrect, but it, it's a book called A Hope in the Unseen. And the story is about a young man who grows up on the south side of Washington, D.C. And um, he's a good student in his school. But he's afraid to let his peers know that he's a good student because he'll be mocked. And he ultimately ends up at Brown University. You find out from his experience how woefully inadequate the public school system is on the south side of any town in terms of resources, in terms of the discipline structure. Education is, it, it's, to me, it is a wonderful thing, but it's got its flaws. Look at, uh, up until recently, look at the number of black students who are suspended from school compared to the number of white. So again, it, it makes me say, this didn't start yesterday. Mm -hmm. This started a long time ago when, I, when, when, when a kid enters kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And question for you there. If you're familiar with Rachel Cargill, she gave a TED Talk, and she talks about three things at the end, which is knowledge, empathy, and action. Mm. And so I like what you said there. That kind of covers a little bit of the knowledge, and I want to tie back into other resources we can dive into for people to understand. Like you said, this goes back hundreds of years even. Mm -hmm. um, but from an empathy standpoint, do you remember the first time you felt, like I don't know if it was the Orange Tree incident or another one, but mm -hmm. where you suddenly had this realization of, oh, I'm black, the world is like, I'm not treated the same or that I have to be careful, for example. I, I can't, there's not a, a point that I, a moment that I can pinpoint. Um, I, I, I can say to you um, a, a memory that stands out to me. Um, I was in high school and I, um, there was a girl that, uh, her name is Karen. I won't say her last name in case she's listening. So it could be a million. We'll Karens. keep that one safe. Yeah. Um, but Karen and I became friends and, uh, we hung out together in the same group and we teased and probably flirted with one another. And my friend, Mike, said to me, she wants to go out with you. And I said, ah. And he said, yeah, she does. And so, um, so I asked Karen if she'd go on a date with me. And she said, yes. Uh, on the spot, she said, yes. And a couple days later, uh, I saw her and she walked up to me. She's crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she was crying harder. And she said, um, I, I can't go out with you. And I said, why? And she said, my dad told me that he'd throw me out, throw me out of his house if I dated a black man. So, and what did that, what did that feel like? like so that feeling right yeah. there is a feeling of 
he thinks I'm not good enough for you? He believes that? He believes I'm not good enough? And that cut to the core. And, and to that point, the constant battle is the battle of they think we're not good enough. They think we're not smart enough. They think we're only athletic. They think we're only dancers. They think we're only musicians. They think we are supposed to talk a certain way. Because there's one. Well, you don't sound black. I'm listening. What does black sound like? Well, you know. No, please tell me what black sounds like. Imagine living in that world where people are judging against you because you don't sound like a person is supposed to sound who's black. There's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things, and I think the concept and really just the understanding of white privilege of these in the world that I'm living in, um, one of the things that everything happening with George Floyd, it did bring to the surface some really good understandings of it. And there's mm -hmm. a brilliant video. I don't know if you've seen it of a guy who has everyone line up to do a race and he says all these pre-qualifying mm -hmm. questions and you get to step mm -hmm. forward. And I thought that was one of the most brilliant definitions that I'd heard. And, and it definitely made me think back to being a kid in, in high school and or more so middle school. But me and my friends, we'd go teepee houses, you know, and, and now th this whole experience has made me think, wow, if I was black, I w that could have been a jail sentence. Or a I mean, we were water ballooning cars. We were, sure. we were vandalizing, you know, yeah, yeah. but we, we never had to think about, right. we, almost in, we almost invited the chase in because we knew, oh, we'd get an adrenaline rush. Right. But, um, and with that, with that understanding, um, and if anyone's like listening and trying to understand, like how would you, how would you explain white privilege to, to someone? I think that um, the clearest way for me to describe it is, and, and I, I saw this on social media, if you think that my life isn't that bad, ask yourself this, would you trade places with me? And if you wouldn't trade places with me, why not? If you don't think that there's a privilege for being white, would you wake up? Could, could you imagine waking up tomorrow, dreaming of waking up tomorrow, being black? So that's how I describe privilege, is that if your life isn't really that big of privilege, Ask yourself why you would never want to be me. But I also describe it as um, you, you understand, well, there's a, a film, uh, it's, it's called Just Mercy. I, I'd recommend you read the book. Um, but a man is on death row. Takes place down in Alabama. He's on death row for an alleged crime of murder that 
the police and the district attorney knew that he didn't commit. They knew he didn't commit it. And had a gentleman by the name of Brian Stevenson hadn't gotten involved, that man would have been executed. Was that somewhat recently? You said... The story takes place actually in 1987. I consider that recent in this world. Mm -hmm. There's another one. Um, the, um, the California Innocence Project. Are you familiar with that organization? I've, I think it's run by a guy. Um, I think I heard him speak actually at a TEDx talk. Justin, uh, I want to say his last name is Brooks, but I could be wrong about that. But in any case, uh, he started the California Innocence Project. And uh, there's a story of a young man who lives in Long Beach. And he uh, played, played high school football at Long Beach Poly. He was bound for USC. Oh, he was accused of raping a young lady. And the young lady was black. And she's the one that accused him. He served his six-year sentence and then five years of probation and uh, Brian wanted to get his life back. But you get a picture of the system by watching the film. And what's the film called? It's called um, The Brian Banks Story, I think is okay. right. I'll, I'll link it. I'll look yeah. it up and confirm it. But he, but he um, what you see about privilege is just look at the look at the court system look at how they plea bargain and they they um, say plead no contest and if you're not educated and if you can't afford an attorney that isn't provided for you by the court system if you can't afford that, you're just a piece of paper that is being shuffled from one desk to the next desk to the next desk, and you end up in the system. And the system is brutal to people of color. It just absolutely is. And so the privileges start in the education system. Look at where you went to school. Look at the, the opportunities that are afforded to you in your school. And if you tell yourself, all the schools are the same, look again. Mm -hmm. They're not. And that, that sparks a question that I had, and again, I mentioned at the beginning, is you touched on knowledge, empathy, and in terms of action. So what can people in like people in, in an advantage, right? We have, we've been given, the odds are not stacked against us. Mm -hmm. And then now with everything that's been happening, it's kind of shed this huge light into, into everything that we haven't been looking at and all of basically like unequal opportunities and everything we're seeing. But what can, what can people of like, what can white people with privilege do? Like what are the action steps whether they're my age and they're young 20s um, or they're older, like people want to help, but they sometimes are asking themselves, what can I do or what can I say? Like, what would you, what would you respond to that? Well, one of the things that I, I, first of all, you're doing it, you're asking questions. 
um, and, and your questions are genuine. Um, but starting to speak up when you see, you know when you see an injustice. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you, you don't need to go loot. You don't need to go riot. You need to speak up. So why isn't that happening? Why does that person do that? There's assumptions that are made. Distance learning has reminded me of the assumptions that are made. Well, just do your schoolwork at home. Oh, because everybody has the internet? Because everybody has a laptop? Because everybody has a quiet room in their home? Ask questions. Don't just make assumptions. Don't, Don't assume that because I'm not an A student, that I don't want to be one. Ask me, what are the struggles in my home? And then ask myself as a teacher, wait a second here. Johnny's not doing his homework. Well, what's homework all about? You'll find this maybe difficult to believe. Homework is for the privileged. It's a, it's a system that we practice in school. It's for the privileged. How can that be, you say? Do you know how many people in the inner city come home from school and they either have to babysit their siblings while their parents go to work? Usually one parent goes off to work. There's no, there's no desk and computer and all of those things in their house. Do you know how many of them have to have a job to help support the family? That's a privilege you have. And you assume that everybody has that same privilege. But they don't. I worked in a high school in Oceanside. And there was a young man who helped me to see that. I was trying to support him academically. So I said, you either get your work done, your homework done, or I'm going to make you stay after school. So sure enough, he didn't get his homework done. So I said, you're going to stay after school. And he said, no, I'm not. And he said, I said, excuse me, what do you mean? No, you're not. You're, you're going to defy what I'm telling you. Absolutely. I'm going to defy what you're telling me. I'm not staying after school. I said, then I'm going to call your father. Go ahead, call my father. I said, you're going to take this to that level? Go ahead and call my father. So I call his father, and I explain the story. And the father says to me, Mr. Thornton, my son is right. He's not going to stay after school. He can't. He has seven siblings that he has to cook their dinner And he has to babysit them because my wife and I have to go to work. That was an eye-opener for me about how privilege really works with homework. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to push one step further here. And if you don't know the answer to this, that's fine. 
And yeah, we'll we'll wrap. Do you have a specific time that we have to finish by? Yeah, I have to be at, uh, on my campus at ten. It is nine thirty. So perfect. We'll wrap up in a few. Okay. Um, so I think uh, all the stories you've shared definitely give and have gotten me my wheels turning about like really understanding privilege and also the power of questioning. Right, mm-hmm. like questioning the assumptions, questioning the things that we don't typically question. So it's really about elevating awareness, mm-hmm. but from an action standpoint, because I'm telling you i'm hearing this from a lot of my friends people like i want to help and i don't know if that's donating to a specific organization or using if you're an artist like painting a mural in your public like Mm -hmm. what from an action standpoint because that is what people like want to help the the people who have the privilege who have the bedroom they have the laptop they have all those things Mm -hmm. but how can how can it's like feels like it's another universe it's another world that we're that a lot of people just can't even understand and now we're starting to educate ourselves but what can we do to like help if that makes sense teach kids to read go to the inner city and volunteer to read i I, reading you 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 talked about knowledge where does knowledge come from reading you know bennett i won't say his last name in case he's listening uh what a huge decision he made to choose the path that he's chosen and for context you can Maybe so just he, really briefly. he's chosen to, um, Bennett grew up privileged, would you say? Yeah. 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 Very privileged. Uh, he's chosen to work um, in a charter school system in the inner city and ask him the story about the number of kids that he's worked with, that they're in third and fourth and fifth grade and they don't know how to read. Trevor Noah says in his book, um, Born a Crime, if you haven't read it, it's worth reading. Mm -hmm. But he he says in his book that you hear the expression, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. But he begs the question, but what if the man doesn't have a fishing rod? And that's a good question. So the fishing rod to me is volunteer. You want something to do? Help kids learn to read. Because if you can read, you can understand a part of the world that those who can't feel lost and hopeless. I don't understand what you mean by what you say. Oh, you tell me that this is a good deal for me if I, if I, if I um, take this loan and the interest rate is 21%. Help a person understand the power of knowing. And I would say as an educator, everything that you can do at that level helps what they do and what I do and what you do and how you understand the window to my world. Because the window to my world didn't just happen like that. There are teachers that approach the school day every day with that kid's just a loser. And I vow to myself, that's not going to be 
the way that I approach school. That kid's not a loser. That kid may drain more of my time and energy, but that kid's not a loser. And it's my job to help him. Volunteer in the local library. Donate books. Not just books about C. Dick and Jane Run, but books that are going to help and that kids can relate to in their own community. Hmm. Thank you for that. And uh, there's so many other questions I could ask. Um, and we'll have to maybe create space for another interview I'll, because I'll, yeah, people absolutely. are, you know, asking, and these are complex questions, right? Like what wh the system wasn't like, you know, there's Brene Brown put this quote out saying the system isn't broken. It's been designed this way. So, you know, I have all these questions that I wrote here. We need to get to about like, sorry, understand. No, don't be sorry. It, there's no way we could cover this in an hour of time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, where did, how did the system grow? Like how to break the system? This keeps happening every, I mean, it's happening all the time, but it's like a, different name, same situation mm -hmm. in happening all over. So we'll get into that, but real quick um, on, on another time. But before I ask you the final question, anyone listening wants to connect with you, wants to find you online, um, where, where can people reach you? you my, um, my website is um, GaryWThorntonConsulting.com. You can just Google it. GWConsulting.com. Yes. Yeah, we'll link it in yeah, the show notes. You can find out. I'll, I'll give you my card and you put it out there. That's great. Um, I, I want to say quickly before you ask the last question, Brene Brown is right. Um, there's a film, it's called 12 Angry Men. It was released in 1957, 63 years ago. It, um, it's a, it's a, almost a one-room film. It's 12 jurors. And they're deciding the plight of the guilt or innocence. I, I, I think that the person that's on trial happens to be Latino. These 12 angry men are a jury of this Latino's peers. They're all white. It was in 1957 in this country that the court, the Supreme Court decided that it was unconstitutional to have an all white, all-male set of jurors. The system has been a mess for a long, long time, and it was designed that way. And it's only when you pay attention do you get the chance to see or do you make the chance to see, wait a second here, this isn't right. This isn't okay. We have to use our voice and we have to use our minds and we have to pay attention to what's going on around us. We have to notice, notice. You know, I, I, I didn't plan my closing thought, <laughs> but it, uh, my, you see a person on the street, you're driving in your car and they've got this sign up and it says, um, we'll work for food. Instinctively, we look away. We look down. It's almost as if we tell ourselves, well, if, if I don't see that person over there, then he's not there. Notice. Look at him or her. Even if you don't choose to give, just notice them. Acknowledge their humanity. Yeah. I think black America is saying, notice us. We're here. Don't look away. Don't pretend like 
we don't exist. We exist. And I'm going to notice you. So how about you notice me? The invisible man is largely about not being noticed, about being marginalized. Hmm. You don't see me. If you don't see me, then you can say I'm not there. Final question. I'm sorry. No, that was good. I think we can wrap. I mean, that was a brilliant uh point to to wrap on because if i ask you another question i think we'll go on a 20 minute tangent i know you have to be somewhere soon but i just did want to say thank you for taking the time to to speak with me today um you've definitely got the wheels in my head turning and i'm really excited to share this with people i think as i've asked the question multiple times people really want to understand and i think by you even just sharing this and your experiences and your perspective it's going to give people like myself um, to start questioning the narratives and questioning how can i actually do something so thank you oops cut off just there at the last second but anyways thank you for listening to this conversation with gary thornton i hope you found his perspective and experiences insightful and helpful All the books, people, and movies and organizations mentioned in this conversation are linked in the show notes so you can dive in and continue learning about how to educate yourself and support the black community. Please share this episode with someone who you think can benefit from hearing this conversation, whether that's to a friend or on social media. Again, thank you for listening. And like Gary said, now is the time for us to further educate ourselves, question both our own and societal narratives, and take action. So thanks again, and until next week, stay curious.